welcome back to Basecamp and to this study of biblical manhood and womanhood. Now, over the last couple of episodes, we have given a few definitions of manhood and womanhood and he begun to explain how we live out our God-given gender identities in ways that glorify God in our homes and on our local church. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about how we live out our God-given gender identities in the world around us which in these days in Canada can be tricky to navigate. Now, also, this episode is going to be one of our conclusionary uh, episodes in this whole series. And so if you are just picking up and listening to just this one episode, walking away with conclusions and things like that, I would suggest going back and listening to the whole slate of these episodes Because today we really are coming to some conclusions and some applications of everything that we've seen in the last number of weeks together. And so I don't want you simply to dive into this episode and walk away thinking that you have come to understand everything that we have been saying about gender and ideas like that around the Bible, specifically in regards to manhood and womanhood. So with that little caveat, let's dive in. Now, in 1971, Gloria Steinem issued a rallying cry for what is now known as second wave feminism. In her Address to the Women of America, she said of the women's liberation movement, this is no simple reform. It is really a, it really is a revolution. Sex and race, because they are easy and visible differences, have been the primary way of organizing human beings into superior and inferior groups and into the cheap labor on which this system still depends. What we are talking about is a society in which there will be no roles other than chosen or those earned. And in that address, Steinem envisioned a new world order, a society in which the only distinction between men and women is biological. And other than bodily differences, Steinem said, the two sexes are exactly the same and thus can do exactly the same things. Or each person should play whatever role he or she desires. And over 50 years later, in in many ways here in Canada, we inhabit a world that is several large leaps closer to the world that Steinem envisioned, even over the last couple of years or so. And especially in a world where we can't even define what a woman is any longer, and yet we will fight for women's rights. (laughs) Which doesn't even make any sense. A world where hormone blockers and bodily mutilation are pushed as normal, acceptable, and profitable means for coping with mental illnesses. Now, we should be clear. The various waves of feminism have yielded some wonderful results, right? From the right to vote which is wonderful, property ownership, wonderful, the principle of equal pay for equal work, wonderful. Many careers have opened up to women that that weren't available generations ago. We praise all of that. Yes and amen, but here's the problem. As we've seen over the last nine episodes of this podcast series, this fluid view of gender as a created social construct is worlds apart from God's design and for human flourishing and from the historic Christian position. Right, the position that says God created male and female in equal value, yet beautifully distinct according to his infinite wisdom and glorious purposes, is now declared hate speech by our government. 
It is a wild world out there. And so today we are going to address two main questions in this podcast. Question number one, what does it look like to express our God-given gender in our culture around us? And question number two, what if we're confused about our gender? So let's start with the first one. What does it look like to express our God-given gender in the culture around us, in our world? Now, as we've stated before, I'm using that term gender as a catch-all to refer both to our physical sex and the psychological social aspects of our identity and how we behave. Right In the last few episodes, we've looked at what the Bible has to say about men and women in the home and roles in the church. And in both of those contexts, Scripture lays out really clearly prescribed roles. Right, roles for husbands, roles for wives, roles for how leadership is expressed in the church. But what about when we think about other spheres, right? <laughs> the workplace, the Timbits teams that we coach, our neighborhoods, and our responsibility as citizens. It, and this is where this becomes a challenging question because the Bible doesn't give us clear prescriptions or restrictions for gender roles in those settings. So what should we do? Should we just close our Bibles and assume that anything goes? <laughs> no. No, we should approach this subject in the same manner we approach other topics that aren't as clear in Scripture. We ought to prayerfully turn to scriptural principles, priorities, and patterns, and then try to apply them to the topic at hand in the context in which we live. Right, so the same way that our Exodus series has been talking about how we apply the law into various situations in our lives, this is also what we ought to do as Christians in thinking about this question. So in other words, this is a question of trying to discern how we live in God's created world according to God's design and for godly purposes in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, right? not too dissimilar from Peter's letters in the New Testament. So let's start our discussion by reminding ourselves of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, the first three chapters of the Bible, specifically that the distinctions between men and women reach all the way back to creation itself, how God has ordered the world around us as his image bearers from before sin ever entered the scene at all. So Genesis chapter 1, remember, teaches that men and women are, without a doubt, created equal in terms of dignity and honor because both are created in the image of God. Yet from Genesis chapter 2, we see that God created men and women to be distinct from one another. Right? So Genesis 2.15, God calls the man to work and to protect the garden and, by extension, to provide for his family. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, God creates Adam's wife to be his helper to, to help accomplish uh, this this uh, great task of actually uh, allowing life to be nourished in the world around him. Then in Genesis chapter 3 verse 9, we see Adam being held responsible for the spiritual failure of the family. And in Genesis chapter 3 verse 20, Eve is then called the mother of all living. Thus, we've talked about how Femininity doesn't require having biological children, but often is seen more broadly in cultivating life in others for their spiritual good, as we see women called to do in Titus chapter 2. So there may be considerable overlap, right, sometimes in how these dispositions express themselves. But generally speaking, even if it's subconscious, we should expect to see men and women expressing them. 
right? Men will tend to work in God's creation and to provide for and to protect others. Women will tend to cultivate life in others and help others to flourish. Now, these qualities may look different in different cultures. We've talked about that. I do recognize they're quite broad. And because of the fall, some men or women may live out these inclinations more or less easily or may even struggle to feel them as natural. But these broad differences simply flow from the reality that God didn't make two identical genders. No, God chose to display his image in distinct complementary genders. So no matter what challenges or temptations we may face on this topic, we should remember that God's plan is always for our good and the good of human flourishing. And on that point, it's worth acknowledging as well the general physical differences between men and women, one that our culture wants to ignore as if it doesn't even matter at all and as if there is no physical difference between men and women. I mean, all of a sudden, we're seeing all these things about how men can get pregnant. No, they can't. (laughs) What in the world? What is this world that we live in? The men can get pregnant or they can menstruate or breastfeed, right? No, wrong. They cannot, men cannot do this. And this is part of the problem. Our culture has gone crazy trying to say that there are no physical differences, no biological differences between men and women. It is ridiculous. It's ignoring basic biology and acting as if we can change the laws that God has set into place in creating men and women distinct from one another. Because friends, these distinctions are beautiful. It's it's a good thing that God made us complementary as men and women. This is part of God's wonderful and wise design. Women and men have different anatomy, different hormones, different roles in conceiving and delivering children, and statistically speaking, different average size and physical strength. It's not wrong if on the macro level these differences lead to certain trends in how men and women behave or the sorts of jobs they take. Yes, there will be outliers, and we should avoid stereotypes and caricatures that are unhelpful. Right, A soft-spoken senior citizen teaching toddlers how to finger paint can still be fully masculine. He doesn't need to become wild at heart or buy a pickup truck and kill a deer and get his pal and buy a few guns in order to be a true man. And a muscular woman who builds airplanes can be fully feminine even if she doesn't have a Martha Stewart cookbook on her shelf and enjoy wearing makeup and gardening and canning. But there are macro-level trends in how men and women behave, and that's okay too. So it's not wrong, for example, for a woman to work construction. But it's also okay if more men tend to work construction due to factors such as their body type. So firstly, when it comes to how you live as a man or a woman in the world, the point is to simply consider and celebrate that God has made you as a man or as a woman, and he's made you different than the other gender. Right? He calls us to live within the grain of the gendered dispositions that he has given you. Right? So in your office, Live out your profession as a woman, not as a genderless blob. No, you you are a businesswoman. Be that. Find ways to nourish life in those around you as you lead teams or sling paint or manage partnerships or homeschool your kids. And brothers, serve your bosses, your male and female bosses, with respect and honor and protect the women in your offices and work sites with respect and kindness as you lead and serve in whatever capacity your job entails. And brothers and sisters, it's good to be reminded here that true joy comes not from ignoring God's design, 
but from acknowledging it as a gift and embracing it. We've talked a lot in this series as well about godly male leadership within the home and the church over the past few months, but you might be wondering, well, how does that work in the world around us? tipped my hand a moment ago, but beyond the home and the church, the scriptures don't give, don't uh, restrict leadership roles to men in other spheres of life, right? Such as government or the workplace. Now, the biblical roles we see in the family and the church do not automatically apply in the world and workplace in a formal sense, but they can still teach us something about masculinity and femininity. See, the whole point that we've been making in this biblical manhood and womanhood series is that whatever job or public office a woman might take, she will fulfill that as a woman, not as a genderless blob. Sister, you will bring your God-given femininity to bear, and you will live out your longing to help nourish life in others in tangible ways in whatever profession you seek out. You don't have to check your femininity at the door. And your femininity is not a weakness. Rather, it is a strength. And you are called to live out your God-given identity as his daughter, as you serve and lead in whatever your job entails. And it is good to do so. And the same is true of a man. Brothers, we work as men in a way that provides and protects for others around us, regardless of your profession. Whether you're slinging paint or writing code or building fences or managing projects or serving clients, or maybe you're part of police services, The point is that we do all of these things in a very masculine way, laying down our lives to protect and serve those around us. So that's kind of an answering our first question. Now on to our second question. Question number two, what if we are confused about gender, our gender, others' genders? What do we do with gender in the world around us, right? So so in looking at the world around us, you might be wondering what happens when people are confused about their gender. I mean, we are being pushed all the time to reimagine gender. And as adults, it's fairly easy to call a spade a spade. But what about those whom we are discipling or these little hearts that are growing up in our homes? They're growing up in contexts where they are encouraged to question the whole concept of gender and might even feel unnatural in their own skin as these things are being foisted upon them. Right? They are seeing things on social media or TikTok or hearing from their friends, and they might be genuinely confused and struggling. I mean, there is confusion all around us. I, I mean, when the nightly news and our social media feeds and our liberal government strives to indoctrinate us to reject gender constructs as patriarchal and colonial or oppressive, we might gen- genuinely wonder what to do or how we fit into the culture around us and what our role is in promoting God's design for masculinity and femininity and, and where are the lines to push back. Right. So, for example, what if your office becomes a place that promotes gender confusion or starting here next week actively promotes June as Pride Month and encourages all staff members to wear pride colors and and you show up not wearing them because we are not allies of sexual sin. Rather, we are allies of the truth of God, right? Or or what if your office starts celebrating gender dysphoria and mental illness by paying for your colleagues to go under the knife, right? So that even though they might not be able to define the word woman, your coworker wants to adopt the physical attributes of a woman and live out a version of womanhood that they uphold. What are you supposed to do? How do you respond to that? What if a family member is found to be struggling with their God-given gender? How do you respond to this growing movement celebrating gender nonconformity? And that is what we now want to shift our discussion towards because living out our faith 
in the world around us has become a little tumultuous in these regards, as we are not living in a Christian-friendly culture. Rather, our beliefs are considered hate speech by our current government. So, so what clarity and compassion do we have from God's word? And what does the Bible have to say to those who feel like exiles in their own bodies? What do we as Christians say to people that we love if they're considering transitioning to a different gender or through using hormone blockers or surgeries? That's what I want us to think about through the rest of this episode. So first, we're going to think a little bit more about the Bible's teaching on gender in the human body. Then we're going to consider some implications about how to love those we know who are experiencing gender confusion. And I'm not going to give the rest of this episode to talking about Canadian laws or Bill C-4 or any other laws coming down the pike. Rather, what I want us to focus on is biblically thinking primarily about how God has made us and for us to see what ultimate hope we have in the gospel, no matter the extent of brokenness that we or those that we love may face. And just one more note as we are getting started and answering the second main question. Because for the rest of this episode, we're, we're not primarily talking about homosexuality, though that's certainly a related issue. There, there are several biblical texts that speak directly to the sinfulness of homosexual acts, so we're not going to focus there. Rather, we're going to focus more narrowly on the question of gender identity. What does it mean to be created male or female? How could it be that some people feel their body not to be a gift but instead a prison, and how all of us as broken people can find hope. So let's start by looking at a biblical theology of gender and the human body with this fundamental biblical truth, and it's this. This is the big E on the the eye chart that I want us to focus on, is, is that God created men and women in his own image. We read in Genesis chapter 1, 27, 28, that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then in verse 31, we read this. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, throughout this episode series, we've stressed that men and women are 100% equal in dignity, value, and worth before God. Yet at the very same time, we've also learned that we should unashamedly recognize the biological difference between men and women as a wonderful part of our Creator's good design. So with sexually differentiated bodies, God chose to exhibit His image in men and women in doing so in different complementary ways. And in the goodness of God's design, Genesis 2.25 describes how Adam and Eve were fully at home with God and with one another, while also being perfectly comfortable in their God-given, gendered bodies. This is what we read, Genesis 2.25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What a beautiful sentence, right? So in the beginning, there's no gender dysphoria, no internal conflict, no discontentment with the way that God had made them. It's important to acknowledge that human sexuality, being male or female, is an objective biological binary trait determined for each person by God himself. I'm going to say that again because it's that important. It's important to acknowledge that human sexuality, being male or female, is an objective biological binary trait 
determined for each person by God himself. Not by you, by God himself. So what David says in Psalm 139 is true of everyone. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. So, so how might we summarize the Christian view of gender? Well, our gender isn't just psychological. No, our God-given gender is put on display in our physical bodies. Right? Our gender cannot be known apart from our body. Our bodies tell us. Our bodies were created by God, given to us to steward, and we were created as men or women. We have XX or XY DNA. We have hormones. We have sex chromosomes. We have flesh and bone. And we were created by God as image bearers with specific genders on purpose. And with our different genders, we also have God-given dispositions and inclinations, right? In addition to our fundamental physical differences, God has also given men and women distinct dispositions and inclinations, which we've been discussing throughout this episode series. There is such a thing as masculinity and femininity, and those are good things. Masculinity is a good thing. Femininity is a good thing. As we've seen in Genesis 2 and 3, these are good things. And how those proclivities become more formalized through roles in the home, like Ephesians 5, and in the church, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3, and in the world around us. And the biblical view recognizes that there are also cultural expressions of gender that are value-neutral and can change from era to era. Right, so men in Enlightenment France wore tights, makeup, and wigs. <laughs> in the Wild West, right, in the Wild West world of the 1700s in frontier Canada, men did not. Right, clothes, hairstyles, colors. The Bible doesn't spell out what men should wear and what women should wear. Though it is significant to note that 1 Corinthians 11, Paul does expect men and women to present themselves as such through their appearance in ways that made sense in their particular culture. And we are all, as men and women, called to modesty as we dress ourselves. So there are some cultural expressions of gender that vary across time and aren't core to being a man or a woman. But what that doesn't mean is that gender is only cultural. I know people on TikTok hate that. That's true. It doesn't mean that gender is only cultural. No, the Bible says gender fundamentally is something you are, not just a way that you dress or behave. Now, let's take a moment and contrast that with the secular view that's become really prominent. Many will say that your sex is only biological. You either have male or female chromosomes, anatomy, and hormones. Gender, on the other hand, they will say, is only psychological. It pertains to your inner sense of identity. It's socially defined and so includes things like behavior, appearance, clothing, roles, etc. And many theorists argue that there's no necessary correlation between physical sex and gender. And in this, they diverge from the biblical view. They diverge from what God tells us about our bodies. An article in uh, the magazine Slate a few years ago put it this way. Gender is a kind of performance, something we actively create from the limited cultural materials we encounter. And the writer then asserted that babies and toddlers are genderless. 
So having a gender reveal party would be pointless, they would say, because we don't know the gender because the kid isn't psychologically old enough to tell you if they're a boy or a girl, which is ridiculous. <laughs> this, this view makes gender radically subjective, known only to that person. Right, so the rationale goes, gender reveal parties are meaningless because we cannot know the gender of the baby because they haven't told it to us. And this view proselytizes, it preaches, that you could have the possibility of having the wrong body for your true gender. Others report uh, a gender identity that doesn't correspond to masculine or feminine at all, but is maybe somewhere in between the two or can be interchanged at any moment. Or maybe you could even be a cat. Right? All, all of this can be summed up with a couple of popular slogans, right? Like, anatomy isn't destiny, or sexual orientation determines who you want to go to bed with, and gender identity determines who you want to go to bed as. So, so this kind of thinking asserts that your sex, your sexual orientation, who you're attracted to, and your gender identity, who you understand yourself to be, are all separate and not necessarily correlated. Even though it might be scandalous to say this, and it's definitely illegal to say this in our own culture, we must be very clear. The Bible rejects this understanding. Our gender being created either as male or female and being either a man or a woman is a gift from God. We don't get to choose it. And, it, it's, and it's, a, it's a holistic gift. It's a holistic gift, including our body, our sense of identity, and the dispositions and roles to which God calls us. We don't get to be the Lord and make this up. No, God creates us and gives this to us. From inside of our mother's wombs, he creates us. And all of this leads us to a natural question, though, which is this. Why do some people seem to experience distress or inner conflict about their gender? Why do some people seem to experience distress or inner conflict about their gender? Which brings us to the next point, which is this, is that the fall, right, mankind's rebellion against God that we read of in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, has distorted us in every way imaginable, including our body and our mind. Right, in Genesis chapter 3, because of Adam and Eve's sin, God curses the ground and death enters into the world. Therefore, the fall is at the root of every physical and spiritual ailment that afflicts humanity. So first, let's talk about how the fall affects our bodies. Now, we know that sickness and death are the results of the fall. Right? In conversations about sexuality and gender, sometimes the question gets raised about individuals who have ambiguous or intersex anatomy, right? both male and female characteristics. And statistics will tell us anywhere, depending on which study you look at, is, are we talking about 1 in 1,500 children may be born with some rare disorder of sex development or intersex trade? Or it, it's around there, depending on which study you look at. Um, the Christian can simply reply that this rare and challenging condition, like other physical and genetic disorders, stems ultimately from the fall. Therefore, doctors and pastors must apply wisdom in counseling such individuals, showing love and care for those who are created in the image of God in a fallen world. But, but when we're talking about transgenderism, specifically, we're not talking about ambiguous anatomy. We're talking about someone who's clearly born male or female and yet doesn't feel that way on the inside. And that's where the debate usually comes in. See, as, as Christians, that's why we've got to remember that the fall affects not only our bodies, but our inner person too, what the Bible calls the heart 
of a person. Romans 1.18 says that men and women suppress the truth about God. And in verse 21, men and women did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, Romans 1 and Romans 8 teach us that nature, as we experience, is not nature as God intended it. Therefore, just because something feels natural in a fallen world doesn't mean it's right or whole. In fact, the fall has distorted our ability to perceive creation correctly, including our self-perception. Jeremiah 79 laments, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, outside of Christ, all of us view ourselves inaccurately in various ways. There is a way that seems right to man, Proverbs 14.12 says, but its end is the way of death. See, we don't listen to our hearts. Our hearts are not infallible. No, our hearts are desperately wicked. So we must listen to God to find out who he has created us to be. We don't find meaning inside of ourselves. And while I can't presume to understand everything going on in the mind of someone who identifies as transgender, there's clear biblical precedent for having deep confusion in one's heart about his or her her own identity. And since we all have these distorted views of ourselves in various ways, this means that we should be able to respond with patience and gentleness to those who are experiencing tensions about their gender. We also know that by God's grace and power, people really can change. Really can. Right Through a greater knowledge of God and His Word, we can grow in having a more accurate understanding of ourselves. Let me say that again. We know that by God's grace and power, people really can change. They can see what does God say in His Word, and God the Spirit can give them ears to hear and minds to comprehend and can change them. Through a greater knowledge of God and His Word, we can grow in having a more accurate understanding of ourselves. See, all of us who are trusting in Christ can attest to this reality. On the other hand, we must be clear that rejecting one's God-given gender is sin. Rejecting your God-given gender is a sin. And sin always has certain consequences. Like all sin, it will lead to pain, despair, and ultimately to eternal hell. To reject your given sex is to reject God's lordship as creator over your life. We must resist the world's logic, which is, well, how can something be wicked if no one else seems to get hurt? Friends, disobeying God is always evil. And transgender ideology teaches us to think of our body as a blank canvas. You can do with it what you will. But the Bible's teaching on creation and the fall shows that we should see our bodies not as blank slates, but as flawed masterpieces. Think of your favorite painting for a moment. Imagine that it had become broken or distorted. Would you then erase the Mona Lisa and turn it into a sunset? Would you recreate it as you see fit? No, you, you try to understand the artist's original creation and seek to restore it, to live with the grain of how the designer has created us to be. So, so what is our hope as we consider the fall and brokenness that we all experience? It's simply this that Jesus came and took on human flesh. Jesus, God the eternal Son, laid humanity alongside of his divinity and stepped into time. He lived as a man, fully embodied, fully human. He came to redeem sinners from all the effects of the fall, no matter what type of fallen self-perception has defined us. 
So let's not forget that Jesus was known as a friend of prostitutes and sinners. He came not for the healthy, but the sick. For those who, like all of us, have rejected God in outwardly obvious ways and inwardly. I love how Paul puts it in Titus 3. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. See, Jesus, the perfect man, came to die in our place to give new life and forgiveness to all who would repent and believe. And he rose from the dead. Which leads us to one more important theological point. And that's that the resurrection affirms the goodness of the gendered body. See, the gospel boldly declares that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. In his risen body, he was still a man, and all men and women who are united to him by faith will rise bodily as well. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15, for example. Paul uses the image of a seed being buried in the ground and then rising up as a glorious plant. In other words, although our resurrection body will be unimaginably better than our current one, there will also be continuity between our identity here and our identity in the new creation to come. Right. So, so God created us as male and female in his image in this life, and we will image him perfectly in heaven bodily, which means in some sense we will still have our God-given gender in our resurrected bodies. On that day, we also will not be genderless blobs. Now, why do I say this? Because in contrast to that teaching, a key pillar of transgender thought is that one's internal sense of gender identity trumps their physical anatomy. It's a classic case of mind over matter, like Greek Gnosticism of old. The person is reduced to two components, psychological identity and physical sex. And the psychological component is given a greater priority. So when you come to think about it, people who do this are in some sense trying to play God, exercising sovereignty over their own existence. But Christianity says that we need not pit the soul against the body in this way. No, we can love our body, as Nancy Piercy's wonderful book says. And, and as we learn to love the bodies that God has given us, we glorify God in our bodies. See, God created us as united beings, body and soul. And the resurrection of Jesus is God's signature endorsing the fact that he sees the body as a core part of our human nature, both now and in the world to come. The body is not an accessory. It's not just a housing chamber for the soul. It's part of who we are now and in eternity as well. And, and we can have hope on the final day that no child of God will experience any disconnect between his body and his sense of identity, though we might in this life. In this life we might, but in that day we will not at all. So in this life we're called to submit to what God says in his word and to pray and to have him help us by his spirit to empower us to do that which we cannot do on our own. There's a day coming, therefore, we will never experience any disconnect between body and a sense of identity. There will be on that day no more confusion, no more struggle, and the resurrection of Jesus helps us point our hope to that day. We are resurrection people longing for the age to come. Which brings us to our last main point as we live out our faith in everyday context. Uh, and, and it is this. 
loving our neighbors in a world of gender confusion. So I wonder, how do we, all right, Aaron, how do we, how do we show the love of Christ in this world that celebrates gender nonconformity? Well, here are five suggestions. First, seek wisdom. Seek wisdom. Brothers and sisters, we're not called to walk this road alone. No, we can study the word together. We can ask our pastors for counsel on various things we're walking through. We can read good books. Uh, Vaughn Roberts has a new little book called Transgender that might be helpful if you're wanting to read that. Also, though, your job might be asking you to carry out policies that you disagree with. So, so you might wonder, well, should I protest? Should you implement the policy but with some sort of dissent? Should you quit your job? And I, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that question. Much will probably depend on your job and your situation and the way that the policy might be worded. And so seek wise Christians for advice and pray. Second, adopt a posture of compassion. Adopt a posture of compassion. Now, when we think of someone we know who identifies as transgender, a whole host of factors need to be taken into consideration, right? A person's sins, their family dynamics, pain or abuse inflicted by others, those could be just a few of them. Which is not to say that they're right to embrace an alternate gender identity. No one gets a free pass on sin because they feel their sinful proclivities are natural to them. But no matter what, we we must have compassion on those who are going through what must be a radically confusing experience. We must have compassion. Remember, too, that many people who embrace an alternate gender identity have been sinned against in terrible ways. They may endure memories of verbal abuse, or worse, for what they wore or how they behaved growing up. So we must share God's disapproval of any bullying or vitriol that has been hurled at human beings created in His image who deserve respect and dignity. I'm thinking particularly, too, if you have a family member, they announce to you that he or she is transgender. I would encourage you to make your first response an attitude of love. Hug them. Tell them that you value and care for them as a person. Beginning with a response like this doesn't endorse their decision. It conveys our commitment to love them in spite of how they are tragically rejecting God's created design. Which then leads to our next point. We need to speak the truth and the gospel in love. See, if someone we know well, if they inform us they intend to live as transgender, we need to pray for opportunities to speak the truth to them in a way that's appropriate to the relationship. Right? So for example, a sibling versus a stranger. You speak truth in a very different way. You pray for them in a different way. You talk to them in a different way. All these things, very, very different. See, truth in a way that's appropriate to your relationship. And then I would urge you to be quick to listen. Try to understand what has brought them to the point of adopting this new gender identity. So when prayer and listening are present, then boldly share not just how you understand our gender to be a gift from God, but most importantly, the good news of redemption in Christ. Make sure they understand that you are the worst sinner that you know. Also, like we often say with people who feel same-sex attractions, they might feel like it's harder for them maybe to follow Christ than those who have uh, heterosexual feelings and desires and proclivities and longings. And yet we know from that wonderful book by Sam Albury, Is God Anti-Gay? That all of us are born now because of the fall as those who are broken and bent in every possible way, which means we're all born as those who are bent sexually. 
None of us has perfect sexual desires and longings. We all are sinners in this. So even in this, make sure they understand you are the worst sinner that you possibly know. And at some point, you may need to talk about some tricky details. If the person is taking on a new name and a new pronoun, the question that you need to ask is, should you use them? Really, it all depends. right? A person's name can usually have more flexibility between genders. right? If they're going by uh, initials or, or, or people who, like I've known men named Leslie, I've known women named Chris or Ryan, right? But but when you begin talking about pronouns, this can become a whole lot more difficult because him and her or Zer and Zim or they or them, all these things are clearly uh, in, in reference to a gender, specifically when it's him and her pronouns. And of course, you want to show respect and you want to be able to maintain a relationship. But you do want them to understand that you do not wish to endorse their decision through the language that you use. And as Christians, we need extreme wisdom here. We should avoid unnecessary provocation. Right? Romans 12, 18 uh, tells us that. We need to avoid unnecessary, unnecessary provocation, while at the same time recognize that we are called to uphold the truth. And we don't want to participate in a lie that is meant to undermine God's clear creation and the gift of gender. But we also must remember that the gospel call isn't primarily about gender and sexuality. It's primarily a call to die to self, which we all must do. It's a call to submit to Christ. It's a call to experience the joy of walking in the light. And if we're honest, what's most offensive about Christianity isn't the Bible's teaching on gender at all. In fact, the most offensive thing about Christianity is the fact that we are all sinners who deserve God's wrath. And we can only be saved by trusting upon Jesus, who is executed on a cross, who stood condemned in our place, facing the judgment that we rightfully deserved. Rosaria Butterfield, a formerly practicing lesbian who converted to Christianity, says something very profound. She said, I wasn't saved out of homosexuality. I was saved out of unbelief. That's really good. And it's really true. See, all of us are born sinners. Therefore, all of us need a new birth. Right? We don't say to anyone, get yourself fixed and then come to Jesus. No, we say, come to Jesus and he will start to put you together again. Russell Moore has said that local churches need to be ready to receive the refugees from the sexual revolution. And I think even more so, we're seeing that constantly. Right? When the promise of gender fluidity doesn't deliver the happiness that people seek, Will our church be ready to receive them with open arms? So as you pray, imagine that God could lead your transgender friend to repentance. And that friend could could be sharing the gospel, planting churches, writing books, and encouraging Christians towards a faithful, biblical, sexual ethic one day. And isn't that what God loves to do? Transform those who deserve his judgment into those who he calls his children? Which relates to our next point, call others to realistic repentance. See, for any sinner, any and all sinners, including our transgender friends, repentance is hard. When you trust in Christ as Lord, you are declaring war against your sin as an enemy. And yet praise God that repentance is also a gift from God and his power is able to produce real change in us. But pastoral wisdom is needed here. Right, to determine what repentance may look like in any individual situation, and it could be complex. 
For the transgender person who has received hormone therapy or had body-altering surgery, pastors may need to work with medical professionals to determine the safest and best ways for that person to embrace their God-given gender. But when I say realistic repentance, here's what I'm getting at. We can't promise that any particular temptation or feeling of dysphoria will instantly go away when one becomes a believer, though all things are certainly possible with God. Those of us with a history of sin and greed or gossip or lust may find that our old habits of mind still feel somewhat innate to us even when we walk in Christ. And it might be something that we have to mortify, put to death daily by the power of the Spirit. And in the same way, we shouldn't hold out false hopes that becoming a Christian will bring instant resolution to any experience of gender confusion. It's possible to be in Christ, embrace one's God-given gender, and still feel a battle from within longing and waiting for the day when we will finally be glorified and renewed, when all of these sinful longings will be gone. And so, to conclude, persevere by God's grace. So finally, I want to encourage us to persevere. Continue to show love to family members or friends who may disagree with you on gender and sexuality. God will be gracious to sustain us as we seek to hold on to our convictions and to pour ourselves out in service and mercy. After all, isn't that what Jesus did? He spoke truth when it was unpopular, and yet he laid down his life for those who rejected him. May he give us the strength to love like he loves. Thanks again for tuning in this episode of Basecamp. I pray that it's been helpful as we've been discussing some uh, waters that are a bit difficult to understand and walk through, and yet God's word gives us very clear uh, indicators, very clear, clear words on on how we ought to proceed and with our own struggles and things that we walk through as christians and then also as we're striving to live for god in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation i want to thank especially the people of capitol hill baptist church in washington dc for letting us use some of the bones and muscle and ligaments uh, of this uh, of this episode. Uh, a lot of a lot of things in here are, are directly straight from there, and and they've let us use this material actually to help equip our church so that we might continue to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, so that we might also better know the truths of Scripture, that we might live in this world and not be of it, and that as we might face various internal longings or desires. Uh, or, or know those who are walking through various gender dysphoria or confusion that we might be able to love them and speak the truth in love and persevere as we're striving to share our lives and the good news of Jesus with those who are busted up and broken just like us. So I pray that this episode has been helpful and uh, I pray that God would give us a lot of grace in the upcoming conversations and uh, in years ahead as we're striving to be a faithful church who holds tightly to the word of God rightly, as our only anchor in the midst of every storm, and as we strive to share our lives and the gospel with those who are far from Jesus. So thanks for tuning in to this episode, and we'll catch you next week.